When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith declared, I could not be shaken. Hello, Scriptorians. This is Unshaken. I'm Jared Halverson. And please don't take Scriptorians as an insult. I don't mean some kind of cold, unfeeling scholar that's huddled over ancient manuscripts. I mean people that are trying to become more like God by studying His Word. People who are trying to tighten their grip on that sharp two-edged sword that we talked about last time. People that are trying to understand the true meaning and intention. I mean those who approach God's Word with the humility that opens the eyes of your understanding and reveals to you things that are sealed to the learned. If that's the kind of scripture study you want to be a part of, then you're in the right place. And today we get to study sections 14 through 17 of the Doctrine and Covenants. It's a pair of threes, three brothers and three witnesses. Those three brothers are David, John, and Peter Whitmer, and the three witnesses are David Whitmer again, along with Martin Harris and Oliver Cowdery. We're going to meet all of them today and spend some time in words that were intended for each of them. But before we get to them, let's pick up where we left off last week. At the tail end of Joseph Smith history, the uh, Aaronic Priesthood has just been restored, and Joseph's describing the persecution that they're facing there in Harmony, Pennsylvania. He's been living with his in-laws on their farm. Uh, Oliver Cowdery has been there working with them, and it's getting more and more intense as far as the opposition in the neighborhood is concerned. Well, Oliver Cowdery has been calling out for reinforcements in a way. He's written a letter to a family that he knew back in Fayette, New York, the Whitmers, and asking them for help. They send David down with a wagon to pick up Joseph and Oliver and bring them home to live with them in Fayette. Now, there's been a lot of movement already in church history, and church history has barely begun. You get the Smith family moving from Vermont to New York. You get Joseph and Emma going from Palmyra down to Harmony, Pennsylvania. Now they're going from Harmony up back up to New York to be in Fayette. And looking ahead, we'll see movement to Ohio and to Missouri and then back to Illinois and on to Salt Lake. All of this in some ways is, is kind of a microcosm of the scattering and gathering of Israel. Because every move, in some ways, is one or the other. It's either a scattering away or a gathering in. And I'm amazed in Scripture how often God can get some spiritual movement out of our physical movement. But often that growth is accompanied by growing pains. They're kind of pushed out. Again, scattering is typically not something that we choose to do to ourselves. And so in Joseph Smith's case, it's the persecution in harmony that forces them, scatters them back to New York. But in the process, what happens? They come to meet an incredible family, the Whitmers, who will play an essential part in the restoration of the gospel. In fact, the church will be organized in their home. And without the persecution in harmony, would they have gone back to Fayette? I don't know. It actually reminds me of perhaps the classic understatement of the book of Abraham. The very first verse in the book, when Abraham says, I, Abraham, saw that it was needful for me to obtain another place of residence. I laugh at that as an understatement because what's really happening? Abraham could have started his record by saying, because my father was trying to offer me up as a human sacrifice to pagan gods, I thought it'd be a good idea to pick up and move. Well, again, this, this wonderful understated, I found it necessary to obtain a new place of residence. In a way, we could say, I was being scattered. 
the persecution, the, the, the death threat that I was facing in Ur of the Chaldees forced him to go on to Haran and then from there on to the promised land. But it was the hard things that he was going through that pushed him in that direction. You see that in the Old Testament when Assyria comes and destroys the northern kingdom and scatters the ten tribes. You see that a century later in the southern kingdom when Babylon comes and destroys Jerusalem and drags the Jews back to Babylon. Minus Lehi and his family, for example, this branch that grows over the wall and comes to the promised land. Again, you get the sense of persecution, opposition, trial, adversity, causing people to move, to, to be uprooted, which forces them to grow again. This is what happens in the allegory of the olive tree, as branches are cut off and scattered to other parts of the vineyard. And what's supposed to happen when they get there? They're supposed to grow, to send out new branches, to bring forth better fruit, so that eventually when the branches are grafted back in, they bring greater strength with them. That's the miracle of the scattering and gathering of Israel. Both halves were necessary. I get this mental image of a handful of magnets that's all packed together. But as you separate them, and scatter them, then each one of those magnets draws all kinds of things to itself. So that then when you gather all the magnets back together, they're not coming alone. They're coming with all the other things that they have attracted when they were off in their scattered condition. You get that sense when Isaiah talks about God sprinkling Israel throughout the nations. And after they're sprinkled and they begin to integrate and intermarry, that believing blood, as Elder McConkie used to describe it, begins to spread throughout other areas. And then now, in these last days, as God begins to gather Israel, it's not just the original Israelites that are coming. It's all the people that they have gathered to them in the meantime. God isn't just shuffling the deck or sending something out and bringing them back as they were. He's sprinkling the nations, allowing them to grow and to almost form these small gatherings of their own so that then when they are gathered together, they're bringing people with them. Perhaps a more scriptural example would be a fishing net. Think about the weights that are all along the edge of it. And when the net is all together in the hands of the fishermen, those, those weights are all close together as well. But as he casts out the net, those weights are scattered, allowing the net to spread and bring in a multitude of fish. If you're feeling scattered, if you're anticipating a move, whether that's a change of physical location or just a change of circumstance that you find yourself in, Embrace the possibility of scattering because of all of the potential gathering that will come as a result. I know Joseph was not thrilled about the persecution he was facing there in Harmony. But if it forced him back north towards Fayette, then it was a blessing in disguise. And when he got there, he found this family, the Whitmers, that not only needed to be gathered themselves, but would do an amazing work of gathering others. What Joseph Smith said about the situation, it was arranged that we should have our board free of charge and the assistance of one of his brothers to write for me. Can you get a sense how much this is weighing on the prophet's mind? Yes, I need to be involved in the work of God, but I've also got to be doing the work of living and eating and providing for my family. God is providing both of these through the Whitmers. I'll get to live there, room and board free of charge. And one of the Whitmer brothers will be able to assist Joseph as scribe. I suppose whenever Oliver Cowder's hand wears out. In fact, it reminds me when I was in college, I, I, I've always been amazed by the miracle of how fast the translation of the Book of Mormon went. What, it was 60-something days, basically? And so I did the math once, and I'm like, wow, that's like seven or eight pages a day to be able to get done with everything. I wonder what it would feel like to do that. 
And so I got a blank notebook and opened up to 1 Nephi chapter 1, verse 1, and started handwriting it out. Now, I, can, I could never imitate Joseph Smith. I can't translate an unknown language into English. But I could imitate Oliver Cowdery and at least get a sense from his side of things. How much time would this take even just to write it out and keep up with Joseph's dictation? I think I lasted like two days. And seriously, after like 15 or 16 pages of writing out in longhand the Book of Mormon, I think I had carpal tunnel, and I was like, okay, um, Oliver, I feel your pain. I think I get the gist of it. I, I'm going to stop the experiment here. Well, again, for not only for Joseph's sake, but for Oliver's. Thank heaven that John Whitmer, he was the th one of the three brothers that would spend most of his time writing a scribe for Joseph. Thank heavens that that was part of the assistance that God was offering through the Whitmer family as well. Remember, we saw that at the beginning of section 10. Don't run faster than you have strength or means provided. I will give you strength. I will give you means. Joseph Knight Sr. is stepping in to contribute. The Whitmer family is stepping in to contribute. Some things only Joseph Smith could do. Oliver Cowdery learned that the hard way when he failed to translate. But anyone else around him realized, well, what can I offer? We're starting to get a sense of consecration already as far as providing means is concerned. Back to Joseph's description of the move, his scattering back to Fayette. He said, having much need of such timely aid, it came right when he needed it, in an undertaking so arduous, I love that that's the word he uses to describe the translation of the Book of Mormon, an arduous undertaking. This was real work. Study it out in your mind. Ask God if it's right. All those things we learned from section 9. And then there's one other thing. It's not just that Joseph was going to receive the strength and the means through the Whitmer family, but he said, being informed that the people in the neighborhood of the Whitmers were anxiously awaiting the opportunity to inquire into these things, we accepted the invitation and accompanied Mr. Whitmer to his father's house. I imagine that true to his Yankee ancestry, it would have been really hard for Joseph Smith to accept help. You kind of get that sense when he says, oh, okay, we accepted the invitation. I guess we'll go. I mean, we're getting shot at here in harmony. But they're, they're offering assistance, and he's finally to a point where he's willing to accept it. In fact, he's desperately in need of it. But by opening himself to that, by, by recognizing his own need and being willing to receive and not just to give, it gives the Whitmer family a chance to give. And it puts Joseph in the vicinity of curious souls, people who are inquiring after this, to be able to shift from a place of persecution to an area of interest, scattering, yeah, but all with the purpose of gathering in mind. God can even take persecution and turn it to his benefit. Once Joseph got to Fayette and began working with these Whitmer boys, he said of them, David, John, and Peter Whitmer Jr. became our zealous friends and assistants in the work. We'll see this idea of assisting later on today. And being anxious to know their respective duties, and having desired with much earnestness that I should inquire of the Lord concerning them, I did so through the means of the Urim and Thummim, and obtained for them in succession the following revelations. That's section 14 for David, 15 for John, and 16 for Peter Whitmer Jr. Such great words to describe them. Zealous, anxious, earnest, exactly the kind of willing hands that the Lord wants to engage in the work. So let's start with David in section 14. Now the first six verses we have seen multiple times so far in the Doctrine and Covenants. 
It's the same way that section 6 begins for Oliver Cowdery, or section 11 begins for Hiram Smith, or section 12 begins for Joseph Knight Sr. And having studied those verses in depth last week in section 12, I'm going to skip over them here as they're repeated in section 14. But not without first just calling our attention to that very first line. What is it that's capturing David's attention? The great and marvelous work to which he's being called. If you were to search for the word work through the first 14 revelations in the Doctrine and Covenants, you would find it everywhere. In section 3, my work shall go forth. Joseph is again called to the work. The work of God cannot be frustrated. In section 4, a marvelous work is about to come forth. Desire calls you to the work. Christ-like attributes qualify you for the work. In section 7, John the Beloved wants to extend his work indefinitely. And then, like we're seeing here, section 6, section 11, section 12, section 14, a great and marvelous work is about to come forth among the children of men. And you get to be a part of it, David. No wonder he dropped everything in Fayette and loaded up the wagon and came running. I can do something for God? Remember that all-important verse in Moses chapter 1, that it is God's work and his glory to bring to pass our immortality and eternal life. It's not just what he does, it's who he is, it's what he glories in. And he's wanting us to be engaged in that same glorious work. There was an inscription on the wall of a church in Sussex, England, dating from about 1730. President Monson has rephrased this in his own teachings, as has President David O. McKay. But the original inscription on the church wall said this, A vision without a task is but a dream. A task without a vision is drudgery, but a vision and a task is the hope of the world. Replace task and vision with work and glory, and you'll get a sense about how God feels about what he is trying to accomplish every time he scatters and gathers, anytime he digs and dungs and waters and nourishes his vineyard, anytime he works in us. My son and I started filling out his mission papers last night. It was exhilarating for me, a little nerve-wracking for him, as he's just, will I be able to do this? And I was trying to help him understand the work that is involved in the work of God. A work that is great and marvelous, but that is work. I remember times on my mission where at the end of a really long, hard-working day, Especially if I was on an overnight trade-off with a young missionary. We would often do this when my companion and I were zone leaders. And we'd, we'd switch off, we'd bring some greenie into our area, and then we would just work as hard as we possibly could to just try to introduce this greenie to what the work of God was all about. And I remember by the time 9.30 hit, we were finally back in our apartment, and this poor elder was just ready to conk out. I'm like, no, no, elder, we've still got an hour. We've got a plan for tomorrow and write in our journals and all these kinds of things. And he was just zombie, right? Totally wiped. And I remember when 10.30 finally hit and it was, he was ready to sink into welcome oblivion, I would often just call out through the darkness and say to him, Elder, great work today. Today was an Ecclesiastes 5.12 day. And I'd leave it at that. And you'd kind of hear this groan and he'd say, what, what does it say? And I'd just smile and go, look it up. And curiosity would get the better of him. So he'd turn the light back on and open up his scriptures and fumble around for a while until he finally said, where the heck is Ecclesiastes? And well, find it in the Old Testament. Eventually he'd get to Ecclesiastes 5.12, which says, The sleep of a laboring man is sweet. And I'd say, Elder, enjoy your sweet sleep tonight, because you earned it. 
it is a great and marvelous work that we get to be involved in, whether it's full-time missionaries or simply full-time disciples of Jesus Christ. So roll up the sleeves and get at it. And that's exactly what David Whitmer is going to be doing. Now, like I said, these first six verses are what we've seen previously. Although I did notice in verse 6 here in section 14, it's phrased slightly differently than what we saw earlier. In those prior revelations, they're told to seek to bring forth and establish the cause of Zion. And we talked about that last time. Let the cause inspire you. The way it's phrased here in section 14, seek to bring forth and establish my Zion. And I love how that's even more personal than what we saw before. It's one thing to, to work to establish the cause of Zion, but to establish God's Zion, it's His. I mean, keep your eye out for possessive pronouns whenever the Lord is speaking here. In section 10, the, the, the bad guys, the servants of Satan that upheld His work weren't just messing with the Word. The way the Lord says it, they were messing with my Word. And the Lord rightfully feels pretty possessive about it. Well, my Zion, Coaxing my church out of the wilderness, calling upon my servants, this really is his. I remember when I was at Divinity School, I had a friend that was uh, hired by some other churches to go teach about the restored gospel. It was during the Mitt Romney campaign, so everybody wanted to know about Mormonism. And so they hired some students from the Divinity School to go and teach adult uh, education classes. But this one particular friend didn't know anything about Mormonism when she was asked to go teach about it. So she called me up and she said, um, Jared, I'm supposed to teach about your church in this other congregation. I don't really know much about it. Can we get together for coffee and you explain Mormonism to me? And I smiled and I said, yeah, I'd be happy to because the fact you invited me for coffee lets me know just how little you know about my church. But we went to, to Starbucks and she drank and I talked. And after like two hours, she said, wow, I, there's way more to Mormonism than I thought. This is, this is rich and deep and amazing, frankly. Uh, I don't think I can do it justice. Would you be willing to come and, and help me teach about your church? And I smiled and said, I thought you'd never ask. Well, when I went with her to this other congregation, it was her, it was her class, right? She was the one leaving the show. But when she introduced me, it was hilarious. She said, you know, I've been studying about Mormonism and, and I'm excited to teach you about it. It's an, an amazing faith with some incredible ideas and doctrine and history. But I, I just, I knew I couldn't do it justice. So I figured I'd be best to, to bring my Mormon with me. And I just remember sitting there going, I'm somebody's Mormon. My Mormon? I'd never been introduced that way. It hit me, man, everybody deserves to have a Mormon of their very own. And I got to be hers for the day. There, there's something about... Again, that possessive pronoun. This belongs to me. And I love that here the Lord is saying, I want you to help bring forth and establish my Zion, my church, my people, my kingdom. These are my children. Will you help me? It's amazing how personally involved the Lord wants to be in His work. It is His glory after all. If I was that thrilled to be introduced by a friend as my Mormon, imagine the sense of belonging we will feel when God introduces us as my Zion. One heart, one mind, dwelling in righteousness, no poor among them. Yeah, they're mine. That's a church I want to affix my name to. That is my Zion. Now, verse 7 is where section 14 diverges from section 
12 and 11 and 6. And it's interesting what David is told here. If you keep my commandments and endure to the end, you shall have eternal life, which gift is the greatest of all the gifts of God. Now, standing on its own, that's a beautiful passage. It lets us know what God is asking of us, obedience and endurance. Keep the faith, as in keep the commandments, but also keep the faith, as in keep going in it, hold on to it. One without the other doesn't do much. You can keep the commandments and then fizzle out. Or you can endure in disobedience. That doesn't do us much good either. Do both of those. And what's the natural result? You shall have eternal life. But notice what he calls it. A gift. And not just any gift. The greatest of all the gifts of God. Now you might sense some tension there between the first half and the second half of verse 7. Because the first half is something you're supposed to do. And if you do it, then you'll get the second half. But wait a minute, you said that it was a gift. If it's a gift, isn't that just something you give me? Isn't it free? Then why am, are you asking me to obey and endure? Now this is where some Latter-day Saints get in trouble. Or at least how some other people's perceptions of Latter-day Saints leads them into an understanding that's a bit off. Some people call it works righteousness. The sense that I'm working for something so that I can earn I can deserve what God is giving me. And if that's the case, then it's not a gift. It is a payment. And Paul shot that down very clearly. God doesn't give us salvation to pay off a debt that he owes us. It's of grace, not of debt. But how does he keep it that way? How does he keep eternal life a gift when he's demanding that we obey and endure in order to receive it? Sounds like some strings attached to me. Well, not entirely. He's not asking us to obey and endure to earn salvation. He's certainly not doing us so that we can pay God back for it. Because no amount of obedience or endurance would ever merit that kind of gift. It is the greatest of all the gifts of God. Then how is it a gift if these things are demanded? Think of it this way instead. Those are not things we're commanded to do in order to earn our paycheck. Those are things we are commanded to do to prepare us to receive the gift that God is offering. Imagine a wealthy friend saying to you, I have the most amazing gift for you, but you have to get a passport or my gift won't work. Now you can probably assume what the gift might entail, but he can't force a passport upon you. That's some work that you have to do to be able to use the gift that, he's, that is being offered you. Imagine a 16-year-old being told by their parents, we have a gift we want to give you, but you have to take driver's ed and get a driver's license first. Well, you think the child knows what the gift might be? See, my parents had a tradition that every one of the six children got a car on their 16th birthday. Some got a matchbox car, others a model car. I think one of the mom found one of those little toy cars that a little kid can fit in at a garage sale somewhere. All of us got a car on our 16th birthday. None the kind we needed driver's ed or a driver's license for. But again, can you sense that based on the gift that I'm offering, there's some preparation that you have to undergo so that you can use the gift properly. When my wife and I were first married, my grandpa kindly gifted us his old upright piano, in serious need of a tune. But thankfully, because of my mom's willful suspension of agency, I was prepared to receive that gift and make the most of it, because mom helped me learn how to play. I hope this is making sense. 
the gift of eternal life, and yes, it is a gift, will mean nothing to us if we have not mastered obedience and endurance in preparation to receive it. I love how Brad Wilcox says it in his classic address about grace, that salvation is not something we earn, it's something we learn, and this is how we learn it, obedience, endurance. Now this to me is interesting, because verse 7 is the first thing we see after we emerge from that common material in the first six verses. And it has to do with a gift, and what might disqualify uh, David from receiving it. Now if you go back to section 6 to Oliver, and to section 11 to Hiram Smith, right after their first similar six verses, the two of them get three more verses that are in unison identical for the two of them. It's very different now from what David's getting in section 14. But if you go back to section 6 or 11, it's very different what the Lord says to Oliver in 6 or to Hiram in 11. But it follows the same pattern. It's still about gifts and the things that will disqualify them from receiving them. You see in section 6, Oliver Cowdery is taught about some of the gifts that God has promised him. The gift of revelation, the gift of translation. Later in section 8, he'll be taught about the gift of Aaron. And in section 11, uh, Hiram Smith is taught about some of the gifts that he's been promised. Most particularly, the gift of the Spirit. That's another great word to search for in these early sections. Not just work, but also gift. And I think the two are meant to go together. To accomplish God's work, you're going to need God's gifts. So develop them. Apply unto them, right? But if there's going to be opposition in all things, then there's going to be some things that might steer you away from using your gifts in the way that you should. What's the counsel to David? You've got to learn to obey and endure. And what are David Whitmer's challenges going to be? We know this, that the th all three of the three witnesses eventually struggled with Joseph Smith and left the church. They all held firm in their testimony of the Book of Mormon, but they all left for a time. Martin Harris and Oliver Cowdery both repented and returned. Who didn't? Who didn't obey and endure? David Whitmer. Ah, David, the Lord saw it coming and tried to prepare you for it. For you to obtain this gift, you've got to overcome the opposition along the way. Now, this is where it gets really interesting to watch this pattern unfold. Because in section 6 to Oliver and section 11 to Hiram, Remember, the first six verses are the same for all four of these revelations. But Oliver's and Hiram's, their similarities extend a little bit beyond into verse 7, 8, and 9. We skipped over those verses when we studied them, saving them for today. But the pattern that God establishes here is fascinating. Again, identical first six verses focusing on the work of God, the word of God, the white field of God, thrusting your sickle with your might, ask and you shall receive, seek to bring forth Zion, and there's this gift waiting for you that you need to qualify for, prepare yourself to receive. There's some obstacles you're going to need to learn to overcome for you to obtain these gifts. And honestly, the gift is what you need to accomplish all that goes before it. You'll be using God's gift to accomplish His great and marvelous work. That's verse 1. You'll need to use those gifts in God's way. That's verse 2, my word, quick and powerful. You'll use those gifts to bless others. That's thrusting in your sickle with your might and reaping while the day lasts. You'll need to ask God what to do with those gifts. That's asking you shall receive, knocking it shall be opened. And you'll need to dedicate those gifts to the cause of Zion. That's bringing it forth and establishing it. Search these early revelations for the word work 
and the word gift, and you'll see them all over the place. They're meant to be connected. He gives us the gift in order to engage in his work. But like I said, there are these obstacles that stand in the way of us using our gifts for God's work, as opposed to wanting to use those gifts on ourselves. In section 14, the obstacles for David, disobedience and lack of endurance. Now, if you go back to section 6 and section 11, eventually it's verse 10 that you'll start to see Oliver's gifts described and Hiram's gifts described. But there's that little space in between, verse 7, 8, and 9, and guess what it is? It's the obstacles that they need to overcome. The things that might pull them away from consecrating the gifts God has given them for the work to which they've been called, and instead using those gifts upon themselves. Remember, Joseph Smith himself had to learn the same thing. Your Syriac vision was a gift not to find buried treasure, but to unearth the mysteries of God. So what are Oliver and Hiram taught? These three verses are fascinating. Section 11 or section 6, verse 7. Seek not for riches. Again, that was something Joseph needed to be weaned off of. But for wisdom. It's not about the gold plates. It's about the sacred record. Not the riches. The wisdom is what we're after. And behold, the mysteries of God shall be unfolded unto you. And then shall you be made rich. Behold, he that hath eternal life is rich. So just like he was pointing David Whitmer forward to the gift of eternal life, here he's pointing Hiram and Oliver to that same gift. You want to be wealthy? Then focus on the riches of God's glory. I remember when my kids were little, at one point we were driving around, they said, Dad, are we rich? And I smiled and I said, you know, there are two kinds of rich out there. There's rich in money and there's rich in love. Now, if you could only pick one of those two, which would you choose? And they sat and chewed on it for a second, and they said, rich in love. I said, good answer. And we are very rich. Win that. Now, that satisfied most of them. But after a couple of minutes of silence, one of my sons chimed up and said, Dad, um, is it wrong to be rich in both ways? And, and I chuckled to myself. I said, no, no, not at all. But unfortunately, a lot of times, if you choose the wrong one first, you don't end up getting the second one. It's like, would you rather have your mansion on heaven or on earth? If you choose it in heaven, you might end up with a bonus mansion on earth. But if you focus on the earth one, you might miss out on the one in heaven. Here for Oliver and for Hiram, if it's rich in wealth or rich in wisdom, you have a choice to make. And your decision will make all the difference. Please try to know where real wealth is found. Treasures in heaven where moth and rust doth not corrupt. The irony here is both worldly wealth and worldly learning can be our downfall. Ezra Taft Benson described that the proud who are learned and the proud who are rich are the two groups that have the hardest time heeding the word of God through his servants. Now we know this from the New Testament. It's not that money is the root of all evil, but that the love of money is. And same thing with learning. President Benson didn't warn against the rich and the learned. He warned against the proud who are rich and the proud who are learned. You have these gifts. What are you going to use them for? Who are you going to use them on? On yourself? Then yeah, no wonder you're not listening to the prophets. But if you've sought first the kingdom of God, again, verse 6 precedes verse 7. Seek to establish my Zion. And if that's first and foremost in your mind, then I can trust you with wealth. 
I can trust you with wisdom. I can trust you with anything. This is Jacob chapter 2 all over again. Before ye seek for riches, and we could even add our education or fame or influence or prestige, seek for the kingdom of God. And after you have obtained a hope in Christ, once you've, you've fully internalized the first six verses, that you know what these are all going to be for, then I can overcome the obstacles for the true use of my gifts. After I've obtained a hope in Christ, I will obtain riches if I seek it, or education if I seek that, or wisdom if I seek that, or friends or popularity, whatever I seek, for I will seek them with the intent to do good. I'll use my gifts for the purposes God intended when he gave them to me. One of my favorite things that St. Augustine ever said was to plunder the riches of Egypt. I've shared this, I'm sure, in other videos. But he was describing a, a secular education. He said that there were some things the Israelites just couldn't get on their own when they were slaves in Egypt. And gold was one of them. And so what did they do as they were headed out after the Passover? They plundered the riches of Egypt. They took the, the earrings and the bracelets and the jewelry of their masters. With their master's permission, take it and get out. Just please leave us. There's nothing left of Egypt. But as they leave, why do they have all these, these riches with them? Because they're going to be called upon by God to use those gifts, that wealth, to build a tabernacle and an altar of incense and a table of showbread and a, and a candle stand, all of which needed to be covered with gold. They're going to be building the Ark of the Covenant. Now, do you understand why they were called to plunder the riches of Egypt? The problem was, before they ever turned that gold into tabernacle implements, they turned it into a golden calf. And that's the danger of misunderstanding the purpose behind the gifts that God has given us. I had those words ringing in my ears through those years of graduate school because I wanted to plunder the riches of Egypt. I wanted to get the best education I could at the best possible schools and to, to seek that. Why? So I would have something to consecrate to the Lord's work. Sadly, I saw friends plundering Egypt's riches and then use it for other purposes. Golden calves instead of tabernacle implements. The choice is ours. What will we do with them? For Hiram, for Oliver, for each of us, what are we seeking? And perhaps more importantly, why are we seeking those things? There's an order here. Wisdom before riches. There's a prioritization here. What are you going to use them for? For you to fully rejoice in your gifts. We need to understand the purposes that God had in mind when he gave those gifts to us in the first place. Here, I want the mysteries of God to be unfolded unto you. By the way, great verb there. God's mysteries are unfolded. I feel bad for the rising generation that only knows GPSs because they missed out on the adventure of unfolding the maps that we used to keep in the glove compartment. Remember those days? These massive maps that somehow could be condensed down to like this size, stick them in the glove box. And for me, just unfold it. You, you pull this up, pull this down, and then it starts to accordion out, and then boom, there's the whole state. Trying to fold them back up and fit them back into the glove box was impossible, at least for me. I love the idea of unfolding mysteries because that really does seem to describe the process. That it's not just one big massive shock and awe moment where everything is revealed to you. 
It's line upon line, precept upon precept. It's let me unfold a little bit more of this mystery. Now let me help you see a little bit more. Let me extend your view and expand your understanding of things. You see, that way God can train us in the process of what are you doing with this knowledge that you're receiving? Are you doing it for the right purposes? Now in verse 8, in both of those revelations, he says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Even as you desire of me, so it shall be done unto you. And if you desire, you shall be the means of doing much good in this generation. Do you see the key word that was repeated there? Desire. As you desire, it'll be done to you. If you desire, you'll be the means of doing much good. This harkens back to section 7. John the Beloved, what is your desire? Peter, what was yours? Will you find joy in those desires? But it's almost like he's trying to educate your desire in verse 7. So then you know what to ask for in verse 8. Ah, I'm seeing your work unfold in the first six verses. In verse 7, I'm going to need wisdom for that. I'm going to need the mysteries unfolded. So why would I care about worldly things when it's heavenly things I can be engaged in? Now that that's making sense, ah, there's wisdom. That's educating and purifying my desires. Now I know what to ask God for. And it's a good thing, too, since he promised me a few verses ago that he'd give it to me. And with purified desires, what will we want to do much good? I always laugh over the difference between well and good when it comes to somebody asking you how you're doing. That same grandpa that gifted us his, his piano was an English teacher, and he was a stickler for good grammar, and he would correct mine frequently when I was young. When somebody says, how you doing? He says, oh, I'm doing good. And I no, 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 I'm doing well. Good is the adjective. Well is the adverb. But the more I wrestled with that, I thought, actually, what if good is the noun? And the verb is doing. I'm doing good. I, to me, that's a beautiful answer. It, who cares about how I'm doing? Let's talk about what I'm doing. Doing well, that's fine. But doing good, anxiously engaged in a good cause, being the means of doing much good in this generation... Whether I'm doing well or not, I can be doing good. And there's no better thing to be doing. What's the ultimate example of that? Look at verse 9. Say nothing but repentance unto this generation. Keep my commandments. Assist to bring forth my work according to my commandments. And you shall be blessed. See how it all ties back into the work of God as described in those first six verses? Talk about the ultimate recipe to accomplish what he says at the end of verse 8. You want to do much good in this generation? Then verse 9 is how you do it. Say nothing but repentance. There's nothing else to say. Every step towards God is a step away from darkness. That's repentance. Keep my commandments. And you'll have the Spirit with you to accomplish the greatest good in people's lives. Assist to bring forth my work. That's all I'm asking. I'm not asking you to do it. I'm just asking you to assist in it. That was the word that Joseph Smith used to describe the Whitmer brothers. All of the assistance that they gave us. Well, that's all that God is asking of you and me. Remember Jesus' words to John the Baptist. Thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. You don't have to change the world. You only need to help me do it. And you will be bringing to pass much good in this generation. No wonder you'll be blessed. 
Not just blessed for doing those things, but blessed by doing those things. You'll be following the advice that you're giving to others. You'll be crying repentance and repenting yourselves. You'll be encouraging obedience and obeying yourself. You'll be assisting others and helping them assist God in His work. No wonder He's creating His Zion. We're all in this together. I even love how vague he is at the end there. Oh, you'll be blessed. He was a little more specific to David Whitmer. You'll receive eternal life, which gift is the greatest of all gifts of God. Here, eh, you'll be blessed. But I love the fact that that doesn't seem to be a problem for Oliver or Hiram. It's like, I trust God. He'll, I'll let him settle up accounts later. It's those servants that go to the Lord of the vineyard and agree to labor in that 11th hour, even without having any promise of what the payment is going to be. Oh, I'm not here for the payment. I'm sure there will be gifts that come later. And sure enough, they do. In fact, it's then in verse 10 that Oliver is told of his gifts and that Hiram is told of his. You just have to overcome the obstacles, specifically for the two of them seeking wealth. And for two young, up-and-coming young men, for two people living on the frontier, used to just scraping by, that's an obstacle that they've got to overcome. They both do. And eventually they consecrate their gifts to build up God's Zion. Now, if we go back to section 14, let's pick up where we left off. The rest of this short revelation is uniquely David Whitmer's. The Lord says to him in verse 8, It shall come to pass that if you shall ask the Father in my name, in faith believing, you shall receive the Holy Ghost, which giveth utterance, that you may stand as a witness of the things of which you shall both hear and see, and also that you may declare repentance unto this generation. So that ties back into what Oliver and Hiram were taught. Declare repentance. Cry and say nothing but repentance. David is called to do the same thing. But notice the focus in verse 8. On his end, if prayer and faith and belief is present, then on God's end, the Holy Ghost will be given. And with the Spirit, what can you do? It, he will give you utterance. He will open your mouth. And what will you be able to say? You'll be able to bear witness of the things that you have heard and seen. Now, the order here is key. You've got to pray first. You've got to exercise faith first. You've got to believe first. Then the Spirit will come. Faith precedes the miracle. You don't receive a witness until after the trial of your faith. But if you'll do your part with faith believing, then God, of course, will do His. You'll see things. You'll hear things. And best of all, you will declare those things to others. That's what will give you the power as you declare repentance unto this generation. Why, why should I change? Who are you? Why, why, you can't tell me what to do. Well, I'm not trying to. But I can bear witness with the power of the Holy Ghost of the things that I have heard and seen from God. Remember, that was Hiram's counsel. That if you desire, you'll have my spirit and my word, the power of God unto the convincing of men. Convince them to do what? To repent. I just want people to change. And based on my prayer and my faith and my belief, I can have the Spirit with me. So that when I encourage and plead and, and persuade people, they'll actually want to change. That to me was one of the greatest miracles of missionary work. To watch a heart soften before your eyes. And for you to declare repentance 
and to see in them a desire to make those necessary changes. That only comes from the Holy Ghost. As he gives you utterance, as he allows you to stand as a witness. See, I love how witness ties in with so much of the other language in that verse. We usually think of witnessing being only something that you see. I am a witness. I saw it. And that's there. You'll be a witness of the things you hear and see. But when he talks about giving utterance, that's part of witnessing as well. You see, when a witness is brought to the stand, he's there because of what he saw. But he's also there because of what he will now say. I, what's one of the things I miss about the South? Being surrounded by wonderful evangelical brothers and sisters. For them, witnessing is more about the talk than about the sight. Sometimes we talk about, I'm going to go out and do some missionary work. They say, well, i got to go out and witness. Huh? <laughs> That's striking me. It was a little odd when I first heard it. But I love the phrase. And you get a sense of it here in verse 8. You can stand as a witness taking what you've experienced and then declaring it to the world. The Spirit is what allows you to do that. At least with, with power, with effect. Even that last line of declaring repentance unto this generation. It, don't, don't disconnect those. That comes as the natural result of everything that preceded it. If I'm praying in faith and believing and the Spirit comes upon me and helps me see and hear, helps me know the truths of God, then I can't help but open my mouth and share that with others. And what will come out, the kinds of things that have changed me, can change everyone else. You can't help but declare repentance. And then in verse 9, the Lord clarifies the source of all of this, as he's done so many times in the previous revelations we've studied. Behold, I am Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, who created the heavens and the earth, a light which cannot be hid in darkness. Do you have any idea, David, who's calling you to his work? Who's Zion we're talking about here? I'm Jesus. I created the heavens and the earth. I see the big picture here. You planting your fields, that's child's play. Come work in my vineyard and thrust in your sickle. I'm a light that can't be hid in darkness. So let it shine, David. I don't promise that people will accept your calls to repent. After all, I'm the light that shines in the darkness and the darkness comprehends it not. I am rejected of my own. He has said that repeatedly as well. But just because they didn't comprehend me doesn't mean they didn't see me. This is a light that cannot be hid. This is truth that might be defied, but it can't be denied. So declare it. As the Lord continues in verse 10, Wherefore, I must bring forth the fullness of my gospel from the Gentiles unto the house of Israel. It's time, David. The, the day of the Gentiles is coming in. It's reaching its fullness. And now the first shall be last and the last shall be first. It's time to begin gathering Israel. And I'm the one that's here to do it. I, I love, again, the, the singular first person. I must bring forth the fullness of my gospel, my work, my glory, my people, my Zion. What was he asking them to do? Just help. Assist to bring it forth. And now that you fully know who I am, let me reassure you that I know who you are. Verse 11, Behold, thou art 
David. As he has said to the other servants that he's called, Thou art Joseph, thou art Martin, thou art Oliver, thou art Hiram. Here, David Whitmer, you're called. Thou art called to assist. I'm doing the work. Just help me. And if you do it and are faithful, ye shall be blessed both spiritually and temporally, and great shall be your reward. Amen. Important to keep that order in mind. Blessed spiritually first and foremost, without exception. Blessed temporally second. And that temporal blessing may or may not include worldly wealth. We shouldn't automatically translate temporal blessings into financial gain. That's one possible manifestation of it. But again, before you seek for riches, seek for wisdom. And wisdom can be as much a temporal blessing as a spiritual one. The same can be said of a lot of temporal things. God wants to bless us in both ways, but we shouldn't dictate to God the specific form that our temporal blessings should take. I suppose the same can be said of our spiritual blessings as well. Just realize that they're all gifts. Gifts leading up to the greatest of all gifts, which is eternal life. And don't look the gift horse in the mouth. Now, David Whitmer, having received his revelation in section 14, his two younger brothers, there was a big family here, but John and Peter Whitmer Jr. both were seeking revelations for themselves as well. We want to be engaged in the work. Just, I, we don't know what to do. But Joseph, you have a connection with heaven. Will you find out from God what he would have us do? And the irony here is that neither of these two brothers, John and Peter, knew what was on the other brother's mind. In both instances, the Lord will tell them, I'm talking to you about a question you had that you didn't tell anybody else about. But the part that's ironic is that the two brothers, unbeknownst to one another, had the same question and ended up getting the same answer. Now we'll talk about that redundancy in a moment, but notice what they are told. You can read it either in section 15 or in section 16, but the very first word out of the Lord's mouth to these two boys, hearken. Remember how the Doctrine and Covenants begins? Hearken. I can speak to you. Listen to my words. He says, hearken my servant. You're being called to the work. You get to assist as well. And then the one word that is different in these two revelations. Section 15, hearken my servant, John. And section 16, hearken my servant, Peter. You are both servants of the same master, but I recognize the difference between the two of you. I love that on every missionary tag, regardless of the language it's written in or the, the elder or sister it happens to be pinned to, it says one name that is identical across the board, and it's that of Jesus Christ. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. What's the only thing that's unique to that missionary tag? The last name of the sister or elder who bears it. We treasure those name tags. Not just because our own names appear on them, but because they share space with the name of Jesus. We are his servants first and foremost. But you do have a specific name and a specific mission that is unique to you. Please don't underestimate the significance of the one word that is different in these two revelations. I know you, John, and I know your brother, Peter. I'm going to talk to him too. And even when words are repeated, the experience is unique. 
Like I said, I'll talk more about that in a moment. To them both, what does he say? Listen to the words of Jesus Christ, your Lord, I'm in charge, your Redeemer, you owe me everything. If I know that my Lord is speaking to me, I know I must obey. But when I realize that it's my Redeemer that's calling, well, now I want to. It's not just my will that's being engaged, but my desire is as well. Now in verse 2, they're told, Behold, I speak unto you with sharpness and with power, for mine arm is over all the earth. Now for us, we often think of sharpness in terms of know, almost an anger, like I'm, he's being sharp with them. But that's not the case. We'll see it again taught clearly in section 121, that we need to reprove betimes with sharpness. Now the Lord's not asking us to get angry. He's not justifying us in being, being sharp with people. At least not in that sense of the term. But in the olden days when we had televisions that actually had dials and knobs on them, there was one that was called sharpness. Now it didn't make the TV meaner. <laughs> it made the picture clearer. And so when the Lord in section 121 tells us to reprove, to correct people with sharpness, we need to be clear in the correction that we're giving. Don't be mean about it. That doesn't do any good. And here, I'm going to speak to you, Peter and John, with sharpness. I want to be crystal clear. Not only so that you understand, but so that you do not misunderstand. That's the way Nephi described it in his book. So God is going to speak with crystal clarity. That's sharpness. And he's going to speak with spiritual strength. That's power. If you go back to our TV knobs, I suppose the power knob would be the, the brightness or the volume. God wants to help make sure these two servants know exactly what they're enlisting in. So let me be crystal clear, sharpness, and let me be bright and bold. Let me speak with power. My arm is over all the earth. And what did we see was in that arm? His sword, a two-edged one, sharp and powerful as well. And now that his sharpness and power has got their undivided attention, verse 3, I will tell you that which no man knoweth, save me and thee alone. Sounds a lot like Oliver Cowdery's experience. Remember in section 6, when the Lord reminds him of something that is only known between the two of them. Oh, wait a minute. I guess I let Joseph in on the secret as well. And when a third party is able to bear second witness of the experience that you have had with God, there is evidence that revelation is at work. Remember what we studied last time, that verse in Hebrews chapter 4 about the two-edged sword? It's also a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Well, that's what's happening here. And that realization would cut them to the core as well. Wow, God knows me. He is willing to speak through another person things that only he and I know. And here's what that thing is. Verse 4. For many times you have desired of me to know that which would be of the most worth unto you. This was a question that crossed their minds frequently. They didn't tell the other person about it. They didn't tell a soul about it. But both of these brothers, I just want to know where God needs me. Did you ever have that question when you were young? Sometimes we ask, what, do, what am I going to be when I grow up? Or if you're trying out for a sport, what position should I play? Or you're trying out for a play, what part do I hope to get? I mean, it's one thing to ask that question when it comes to career. It's another thing to ask that question when it comes to covenant. Covenant. 
I want to play on the Lord's team. What position do you need me to fill? I want to perform on the Lord's stage. What role do you have for me? I remember years and years ago as I was graduating as an undergraduate at BYU. And I was close to a professor there that was just amazing. And I remember I had a conversation with him about what I called holes in the kingdom. See, I knew that eventually I wanted to pursue graduate study in religion, but I just wanted to be useful to God. It was a sense of more used would I be. And so I turned to this professor and said, what does the Lord need? I mean, in some ways, I, I feel like I could study anything and have a good experience with it, but, but where would the Lord need me? And this professor of mine really knew the field of, of LDS studies and, and the experts in the field and the different areas they were working on and so on. And, and his wheels were turning and he said, you know, we could really use a good scholar of ancient Persia. I don't know if we have one of those. I mean, this professor knew his Akkadian and his Ugaritic and, and all these other ancient Semitic languages and things. But he said, you know, ancient Persia, we could really use somebody that's an expert in that field. And I remember at the time thinking, uh, is there anything else that you need? <laughs> I mean, ancient Persia just didn't capture my imagination. It does to other people and wonderful because we need somebody. But I just, I remember after that conversation, just kind of puzzling it out of my mind, almost wishing that there was this big mega list of all the holes in the kingdom. We need somebody who can do this or can do that. I mean, honestly, it reminds me of a story that Ezra Taft Benson told. When the work of the Lord was going to start in Finland, they wanted to open a mission there, but they didn't feel like they had anybody that could be the mission president. No one spoke Finnish. And so they were uh, just on, kind of on the lookout, praying, Heavenly Father, we need somebody that can go and do this. And at one point, President Benson was crossing the country via train. And I can't remember exactly where he was, somewhere in the Midwest, but he missed the train. He missed this connection. And so he, he called, found out who the mission, excuse me, who the stake president was in that area and called him up and said, um, I'm so sorry, but I'm stuck in this little town. Do you have any members that live nearby that could come and pick me up and I could just stay with them for the evening so I can catch the train tomorrow? And the stake president said, sure, I know someone that lives in the vicinity. I'll, I'll send them your way. Well, the man ends up picking him up, uh, President uh, Elder Benson, and starts bringing him home. And they have this conversation and, and just wonderful man. And as President Benson's getting to know him, he asks so where are you from? I mean, your ancestors. And he said, oh, well, my, my ancestors are Finnish. And Elder Benson's ears perked up. And the more they talked, he realized this man is a Finnish speaker and a faithful man, a worthy disciple. Well, guess what he eventually was called to do? To fill a hole in the kingdom. And again, I just remember talking with this professor, wishing that there was some list I could find. <laughs> we need everybody. We need people who can do all of these things. And then I thought, man, if I could have that list and then brainstorm all of my interests, my, my hopes, my aspirations, my gifts, and then just cross the lists and see where they, where they line up. I didn't end up studying ancient Persian. But as I did feel guided by God, as I was plundering the riches of Egypt, take this class, study that. Work on this for your thesis. Try to master this content as you're preparing for qualifying exams. Focus on this for your dissertation. Become an expert. I mean, that's the joke about grad school. You learn more and more about less and less until you know everything about nothing. And my, my tiny little sliver is about faith loss and anti-religious attack. And how do I kick the legs of faith out from under you? And I've been amazed at how useful that has been 
as I'm trying to help assist God. That's all I am, just a lower assistant, but trying to help God bring forth his Zion. And I'm amazed at the kind of tabernacle implements the Lord can make out of whatever we will offer him. I just want to know where I can be most useful. The Lord has need of willing men and women with hearts that know and feel. He needs people that are willing to roll up their sleeves and put their shoulder to the wheel. He needs people that will ask this kind of question and to ask it many times, to desire of him. Not just to throw out the question, but an honest desire. Heavenly Father, what do you need? What do you need me to do? What do you need me to become? What knowledge should I gain? What skill set should I develop? What spiritual gift should I seek earnestly so that I have something to consecrate to thee? I'm seeking wisdom before anything else so that I'll know how to use whatever else I gain. I'm seeking first the kingdom of God. I'm trying to bring forth and establish thy Zion. But put me in, coach. I don't care what position you want me to play. I just want to play in the game. In verse 5, the Lord responds to their question with this. Before he even answers it, he thanks them for the desire that was motivating the question to begin with. Behold, blessed are you for this thing. You haven't even done anything yet. I mean, they had, but they hadn't even gotten the answer to know what am I supposed to be engaged in. But blessed are you for this thing, for the question, and for speaking my words, which I have given unto you according to my commandments. Now, I don't really know exactly what that is referring to, but John and Peter must have been engaged in God's work in some way. In fact, remember when Joseph said, there's all kinds of people in the vicinity that are expressing interest. They want to know more about it. Well, perhaps that's indicative of the Whitmer family who'd heard some other things from Oliver Cowdery before. I just, there's, there's news about God beginning his work again. God's work is going forth. Perhaps John and Peter have already been speaking God's words based on God's commandments to them without them even knowing where the commandment was coming from. To just feel impelled. I don't know why. I just, I, I get, it's on my mind. I'm, I'm interested about these things. I want to be engaged in God's work. And again, the Spirit gives us utterance. We can't help but speak God's words in according to God's commandments. And we're blessed for that. But again, I love the beginning of verse 5. You're blessed for the question even before you act on the answer. I've had that experience often with students who will just come into my office and just, I'm struggling with this, or I'm wondering about this. And so often their questions are so pure. There's such a righteous desire behind them. They want to do better at their calling. They want to change their lives. They want to be better prepared to make a difference in God's work. And they're asking me about this or about that. I want to understand this gospel topic better, or I want to make sense of this, or how do I become better at such and such? And honestly, there are so many times where I'll just say to them, the fact you're even asking the question is such a beautiful sign that you're on the right track. Even before you get the answer, let alone do anything about it, which I'm convinced that you will because of what's behind the question. A humble heart and a righteous desire. Blessed are you for this thing. And then the answer finally comes to both of them. Now behold, I say unto you, 
that the thing which will be of the most worth unto you will be to declare repentance unto this people, that you may bring souls unto me, that you may rest with them in the kingdom of my Father. Amen. You see how selfless the Lord is in calling us to assist? I want you to rest with them. I want you to receive the greatest of all the gifts of God, eternal life. I want you to be part of the kingdom of my Father. And so what am I asking you to do? Come home with hands overflowing. Send out the magnets and gather as many to you as you can so that then as I gather you, I'm gathering them. Cry repentance. It's what he said to Oliver and Hiram. It's what he said to David. That's the only thing we can offer people is the hope that comes through the atonement of Christ. My work shall go forth, he says back in section 3. And what was the work? That a knowledge of the Savior needs to come to all nations, kindreds, tongues, and people. And the most important thing you can do, the work of greatest worth, is to thrust in your sickle with your might. To give God your heart, your might, your mind, and strength to prepare yourself to plunder Egypt and to offer it all on the altar of consecration. Lord, more used would I be. Help me help people to change. This is such a beautiful prelude of what we'll see next week in section 18, where the Lord speaks of us resting with others as we all rest in the kingdom of God. You see how he all wants us home? It's his Zion after all. Such a magnificent interplay of the two great commandments. You want to serve me, the vertical, the love God? Then go serve others, the horizontal, your neighbor. Cry repentance. Bring them back to me. You'll come home with them. Now all of this to two amazing brothers in two amazing revelations. But... And I often sense this among young people especially, when they look at it and go, what? It's the same thing. I remember back when I taught seminary, and I'd be covering these sections, I would often gather a bunch of students at the front of the classroom and say, okay, uh, you're going to be Oliver Cowdery, you've got section 6, I want you Hiram Smith, you're section 11, I want you Joseph Knight Sr., DNC 12, and you are David Whitmer, section 14. Now we're going to try an experiment, it's going to be crazy. But I want all four of you to read your revelations out loud simultaneously. It's going to be crazy because you're each reading a different revelation. It's going to be total cacophony. But I want all of you students out in the audience to see if you can focus clearly enough on a single individual to know what the message was to them, even though they're all going on at the same time. Now, again, nice thing about seminary students, they don't typically know any of this in advance. And so they're just like, oh, will I be able to hear this and recognize a single voice amidst the confusion? And then I say, okay, go. And section 6 and 11 and 12 and 14, all simultaneously as they all read in unison the same words. It usually takes a second or two for the rest of the students to go, wait, wait, huh? And then the others like stop reading and look at each other like, wait, what section are you on? And they're like, this is all the same stuff. And then to dramatize it, okay, sorry, sorry, I, I, just two volunteers. You come up, you are uh, John Whitmer, you come up, you're Peter Whitmer Jr. Now you do 15, you do 16, simultaneously, ready? Go. And as they start, like I said before, the only word that isn't perfect unison is the name. Two voices. Hearken, my servant, John, Peter, and listen to the words. And after you've dramatized that, some, a lot of times the students are just kind of like, wait, huh? Is God sending out form letters? 
this the same thing? There's almost kind of this disappointment. Like you might feel if you compared your patriarchal blessing to someone else's and they were the same thing. Now, ironically, nobody tends to feel that when they read their mission calls. And 95% of that letter is identical for every called servant of the Lord. In fact, that language is profound. It's beautiful. But it is common to all of God's servants because it's what service to God entails. But like I said, with missionaries, nobody is worried about that. What they're fascinated with is, that's my name. Like I said, filling out my son's mission papers. And it's like, when you get the paper, is this the right name that it should say? Should it say Elder Halverson? And just looking at that and saying it out loud, he was like, whoa, this is starting to feel real dead. But also to see then the place. Where do you want me to serve? Regardless, wherever I happen to go, I will be crying repentance. It's the work of greatest worth. But where I'll be crying it, who I'll be crying it to, in what language I will say arrepentimiento, repentance, that is going to be unique to me. Again, with mission calls, we don't mind at all the repetition. What is so touching and moving and life-changing is the small handful of words that are unique to you and me. Now, there's something else to be said about this idea of repeated revelation. Speaking of missionaries, I had a companion. This guy was hilarious. Big athlete, super popular guy in high school. Uh, all the girls liked him, and he kind of liked all the girls. In fact, there were two girls that he dated off and on, and, and he, I guess he wanted to keep his options open post-mission. And so he was writing them both. Uh, he liked them both. They knew each other, but didn't know that they both were part of this triangle. Uh, is this making sense? Well, this elder would write letters, this was pre-email days, and he would write letters to both of these girls, just about every P-Day, uh, to keep his options open. And the letters were very similar. As he's just sharing what he's going through and being nice and supportive and, and showing interest in both of these, uh, both of these girls. Well, one fateful P-Day, he happened to write two very similar letters with a different name on top. He happened to fill out two very similar envelopes, same city, just different street address and name on the top. And then he put the letters in the envelopes, but happened to switch them accidentally. Well, those letters arrived at the homes of these two young women. And they both opened them and saw the wrong name at the top. And that would have been confusing. And then they read the letter and realized, no, but it's the same kinds of stuff he's been saying to me. <laughs> well, as, this, as the story got back to this companion of mine, and he just felt so horrible and awkward, he said what ended up happening is one of the girls, both of them were shocked, like, what? He's been, there's someone else that he kind of likes too, and he, he, you know, he wasn't trying to cheat on anybody, but just again, like I said, keeping his options open. But what was hilarious is one of the girls saw the other person's name, recognized the content would be similar in her own, and was livid. The other one read it, saw the same snafu, and thought it was hilarious. What, a, what an idiot. I can't believe he made this mistake. And she, had a little guts herself, drove to the home of the other girl. And knocked on the door and said, hello, um, I have something that belongs to you. And I'm assuming that you have something that belongs to me. 
Now, I'm guessing that what yours says is a lot like what mine says, but if it's all the same to you, I'd kind of rather have the one with my name on top. You mind if we switch back? And they did. And the girl that was angry stayed angry. And the girl that thought it was hilarious held on to her copy and held on to the missionary who wrote it. And they got married once he got home. This hilarious story. But is, is that what's happening here? Is the Lord just writing out the same letters and then changing the name on top? And is, what would have happened if he switched the envelopes? No, that is not what is happening at all. But when two people have the same question, is it odd that they would receive the same answer? And like I said, if two people want to know from God what the most important work they can be involved in, when something is superlative, it tends to be singular. And the work of greatest worth is to cry repentance. Now, there's a lot of different ways that that crying of repentance can take shape. And sure enough, John and Peter Whitmer Jr. would have different submissions underneath that large category of bringing souls unto God. That's what declaring repentance is. In fact, it might actually be a blessing to us if we go in reverse, as we see our separate gifts as opposed to someone else's and our different assignments and various callings. And if what we're doing here is we're starting with the big picture and then later you can start to see, oh, John became church historian. Peter did other things. This is fascinating. Okay, they all had the same big picture, but they did different specific things. on Same strategy, different tactics. Same team, different roles. Is this making sense? But in our case, because the differences are so obvious, especially, sadly, when we compare ourselves to one another, and how come they always have those kinds of callings when I have these kinds of callings, or whatever the case might be, for us it would be wise to go in reverse and start to see and differentiate between these small, the, 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 I mean, the on-the-ground differences between us, and then trace them uphill until we see the large umbrella and we realize we really are all in this together. We all really are consecrating whatever gifts we have. God is the master of us all. And we are, as John the Baptist said, simply fellow servants. It's one thing to admit that we're all servants, but can we embrace the fact that we're all fellows? If we're ever going to be God's Zion, we do have to become of one heart and one mind, after all. I even wonder, honestly, I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall when John and Peter Whitmer Jr. compare notes. And they're like, wait, he said the same thing? Honestly, I think they would be less shocked by the fact they got the same answer than by the fact that, whoa, we had the same question? No way. You were wondering about that? So was I. It actually suggests just what kindred spirits these brothers happen to be. An amazing family. Worth being persecuted out of harmony for. To be able to go to Fayette and meet the Whitmers that would do so much good among that first generation of church members. However those two original brothers felt about the common language of their revelations. For us modern readers of them, the fact that we read section 15 and then get a repeat in section 16. To quote Henry B. Eyring, when the words of prophets seem repetitive, that should rivet our attention. In a way, we are simply allowing these two brothers, John and Peter, 
to come before us one by one and bear their singular and solemn testimony that the most important thing that they or we could possibly be involved in is bringing people back to God, declaring repentance. In case you missed it in section 15, you'll see it again in section 16. And with that firmly in mind, we're ready to go from those three brothers to these three witnesses in section 17. Now what's amazing is by now they would have known that there were going to be three witnesses to the plates. Joseph translates the book of Ether and in it very clearly. This is kind of director's cut, kind of stage directions where Moroni is writing, kind of speaking off the page to its eventual translator, saying, hey, someday there will be three witnesses to this too. You will have some, some mortal backup for your testimony. And so as Joseph is translating those things, and as Oliver is acting as scribe, and as Martin Harris has been involved, and David Whitmer has kind of joined the group, we're starting to wonder, could he be speaking about us? Who will the Lord choose to, to be these three witnesses? Kind of a Lord, is it I, or in this case, a, a Lord, please let it be me. I would love to be able to witness these things. We know that especially from Martin Harris. Remember section five. I just want to see him. I want to know for sure. And, it, and God's like, no, no, no. Seeing will not be believing, but believing will allow you to see. That, as clearly taught in section five, is going to be reiterated clearly in section 17. That's important kind of preliminary work that has to be done for all three of these witnesses. And true to form, it's Martin Harris that has the hardest time with it. Again, if you were to, rather than just scriptural, if you were to look historical, when all four of these men, David, Oliver, uh, Martin, and Joseph, when they go out into the woods to seek this witness of the golden plates, that only God would vouchsafe with them. It's Martin Harris that it plays the Jonah here. Why the stormy moments at the beginning? Because there's someone that lacks the faith for the miracle to take place. And so Martin excuses himself. And Joseph and Oliver Cowdery and David Whitmer have their experience. And then it's Joseph that has to go find Martin, who's pleading with God for, for faith and for forgiveness and just wanting to be able to qualify himself for this miracle. And as Joseph prays with him, with sufficient faith, then the miracle comes to him as well. I love the fact that, there's, that it's, it's messy here. It's, I'm struggling and I'm wanting and I'm trying. And, and the same personality of Martin runs throughout the whole thing. Faith for... Oliver and for David came a little easier. Faith came harder for Martin Harris. I love the fact that all three of them got there, but their paths were different. And the same holds true for us as well. Now in 17 verse 1, the Lord says, Behold, I say unto you that you must rely upon my word. That's your first order of business. You've got to learn to trust me. That way the witness will come as the reward of your faith not as the source of it, because that's not faith. That's just an acknowledgement of the obvious. So rely upon my word. And if you do that with full purpose of heart, you're not holding anything back, it's all in, then notice what you'll see. You shall have a view of the plates and also of the breastplate, the sword of Laban, the Urim and Thummim, which were given to the brother of Jared upon the mount when he talked with the Lord face to face and the miraculous directors which were given to Lehi while in the wilderness on the borders of the Red Sea. Now this is a show and tell worth showing up to school for. They weren't just witnesses of the plates. 
they got to see some of the most incredible artifacts of ancient Nephite and Jaredite civilization. But this was still more church worship than museum visit. But I do love what each of those objects might represent for us. Again, they became literal witnesses. They saw all of these things. But let's take them as symbols as well as realities for a moment. And what comes to us if we learn to rely upon God's word with full purpose of heart? If we exercise faith, what will he bless us with? He will give us his word. Unfolding his mysteries. That's the plates. Here is my word. Do you see what I'm trying to teach you? He'll bless us with safety. Our faith can protect us. That's the breastplate, right? And if we use the armor of God, then the breastplate is righteousness. And if I can exercise faith, then I can bring righteousness that will protect me and those that I love. Well, what about the sword? There's protection as well, more offensive than defensive. But that sword is also the spirit and the word as, as rewards of my faith to be able to wield the two-edged sword to discern the thoughts and intents of the heart, to cut to the chase in any argument or confusion, faith can put that in our hands. How about the Urim and Thummim? These instruments of revelation. And when I rely upon God's word with full purpose of heart, then I can see so far beyond what my mortal vision would give me. I'm seeing with the eye of faith. I'm seeing light and truth to perfection, since that's what Yerim and Thummim means. Urim, lights, Tumim, perfections. My faith grants me access to that. And finally, the Liahona, the miraculous directors. With my faith, I can find guidance and direction in my journey through the wilderness toward the promised land. It will help me stay to the most fertile parts of the wilderness. It works according to the diligence and faith and heed I give to it. Well, that's true of all of these things. No wonder the verse begins the way it does. Rely upon my word. Have faith in me. Once they pass that trial of faith, these witnesses witnessed all of this. Verse 2 clarifies and confirms that. It is by your faith that you shall obtain a view of them, even by that faith which was had by the prophets of old. See, I love how their faith is connecting them to prior dispensations, just as their witness of these artifacts is connecting them as well. They're connecting with Lehi. There's the Leahona. They're connecting with Nephi. There's the sword of Laban. They're connecting with the brother of Jared. There's the, the interpreters, the, the Urim and Thummim that were given him. Those are the beginnings of all of these ancient American dispensations. And fast forward to the end, and you're getting the plates. There's Mormon. You're getting the breastplate. There's Moroni. I, I just, I love the connection between verse 1 and verse 2. You get to connect with these ancient prophets because your faith is like them. That's what the Lord said to Enos. Your faith reminds me of the faith of your ancestors. Wow, what an incredible cloud of witnesses to be able to be a part of. Then in verse 3, I love the order here. After you have obtained faith, that's your first part, right? Rely upon my word. Second, and have seen them, so faith precedes the miracle. You don't receive a witness until after the trial of your faith. Then third, 
after you've seen them with your eyes, you shall testify of them by the power of God. You see, if you didn't require faith to see them, then yes, you could still testify of them. But you wouldn't have the power of God with it because you didn't need the power of God. He was not a part of the witness. That was purely natural, rationalistic, uh, empirical. You saw it. I mean, do I need the Spirit of God to testify of what is obvious, factual information? You don't need the power of God into the convincing of men. It's just, boom, it's empirical, it's proven, take it. I remember in one year at BYU, uh, every Sunday, BYU turns from a university into church. And all kinds of lecture rooms and, and, and different classrooms turn into chapels instead. I remember one year, our sacrament meeting happened to be held in a chemistry lecture hall. And there, emblazoned on the wall, was the periodic table. I remember just thinking to myself sometimes, it'd be funny if somebody slipped in their testimony. And I, I know the church is true, and I know that argon is a noble gas. And uh, I, mean, I mean, there it is, right? You don't have to bear your testimony of the periodic chart. You don't need the spirit of, or power of God to confirm this reality. But if something required faith instead of just study, then your faith is rewarded by the spiritual evidence, a testimony of truth, and then when you testify of it, you do so with the power of God. He's a part of the process from start to finish. And the order of start to finish is important. It's not you see it first, and then as you testify of it, then your faith comes. No, that's not faith anymore. You already saw it. We talked about this so many times in the Book of Mormon. To take advantage of your days of doubt so that faith actually has space to function before knowledge comes to force it out. It's got to be in that order. Faith first, sight second, testifying third. And please don't stop at number two. That third part is key. You've got to bear testimony of these things. That's part of crying repentance. That's part of letting the world know. God seldom sends much water through a kinked hose. And so if you're not going to send it beyond you, then God's... If you're not a magnet drawing other people to you, why is he going to send you out into the, into the fray? We need to be willing to testify of the things that we know. And as we're, we're showing God our willingness to do so, then God will bless us with that gift according to our faith. Now in verse 4, this you shall do, interesting reasoning here, that my servant Joseph Smith Jr. may not be destroyed. That's the first half. And then the second and that I may bring about my righteous purposes unto the children of men in this work. Now, I think usually we focus on the second and forget about the first. Second reason, why do we need witnesses? So that God's righteous purposes can come to pass. I mean, their witnesses are right at the beginning of the Book of Mormon. Open it up and see, wow, there are other people that testified of the reality of the plates. I don't have to settle for taking Joseph's word alone on this, but it's Joseph's word alone that is being strengthened by these additional witnesses. Part of the law of witnesses is because of what it will do for the, the jury. It's like, wow, there's a lot of people testifying of the same thing. There's corroboration here. But part of it is also to protect one another as witnesses. And that's the first part of it. Joseph needs backup. God is willing to give it every time someone asks. But there need to be other mortal people. This is back to section 5. There needs to be the, the personal testimony that can come forth. I need to trust horizontal testimony that in, excites in me 
the desire to gain a vertical witness of my own. But now Joseph is no longer standing alone in this. It's not that all roads have to lead back to him and everything's hanging on him. No, people can gain a testimony as they listen to the words of Oliver Cowdery or David Whitmer or Martin Harris. Each person, having gained their own vertical witness, then can become almost this maypole that all these others can begin gathering around and then incite them to gain testimonies independently of their own. We saw this actually before as well. In section 5, when the Lord says, Because I foresee the lying in wait to destroy thee, Joseph, no wonder Martin has to gain a testimony. Again, he says to him, There are many that lie in wait to destroy thee from off the face of the earth. That's the caution for Joseph. And for this cause, that thy days may be prolonged, I have given unto thee these commandments. And what were these commandments? That Martin Harris has to do these things to gain a testimony of his own. It's like, Joseph, I don't want you to stand alone here. You need backup. But it's got to be done in the right way. So Martin, please do it in the right way. Faith first, sight second, testimony third. You get a hint of that. That was Martin. You get a hint of that with Oliver also in section 6, when he's told to be diligent and stand by my servant Joseph faithfully in whatsoever difficult circumstances he may be for the word's sake. Ironically, with all three of the three witnesses, they all eventually left Joseph's side. They didn't stand by God's servant Joseph. They didn't do it faithfully. However, they did live the end of that verse. When it talks about standing by Joseph for the word's sake, they all got to the point where they wouldn't do anything for Joseph's sake, but they held on to truth for the word's sake. They never deny their testimony of the Book of Mormon. As has often been pointed out, their departure from the church, rather than weaken their testimony, actually strengthens it. Because now, if, if there's ever ulterior motives to, to out Joseph for making up this whole thing, wouldn't you do that when you're on the outs with Joseph? When, when you've separated yourself from him, you're not a part of his church anymore. And you want to make him look bad? Now's your chance. But none of them could. They didn't stand by Joseph, but they stood by the word because they knew that word had come from God. Their faith had been met with assurance. Their faith had turned to knowledge and they bore testimony of it no matter what. Again, in an ironic way, that gave Joseph Smith back up indirectly, even when they were unwilling to back up Joseph directly during their periods of apostasy fascinating to see the, the afterlife of this experience with the three witnesses. And in fact, tying it back into verse 4, after the three witnesses and Joseph returned from the woods, and Joseph comes in, he was euphoric, I mean floating on, on air, as he told his family, I'm not alone anymore. Such a weight had been, a burden had been lifted from his shoulders. I'm not the only one who knows now these other three know as well, and they will bear testimony. I'm not the only pillar that is holding up the truth. There are others alongside me, and they know as well as I do. I don't know about you, but there is such power, such strength and reassurance by having fellow servants bearing their own testimony as second, third, fourth witnesses of your own. That's why missionaries love having members with them in discussions. 
so that you can bear witness as someone that's a lot more like the investigator than the missionaries are. Or like my wife said, serving her mission in France and just having doors slammed constantly. She said when she went to general conference and tuned in and just, I'm not the only one in the world who knows these things are true. So strengthened and fortified. That's what's happening for Joseph. Not just that he wouldn't be destroyed, but so that he could be strengthened to have backup by fellow witnesses of truth. Now, verse 5, in some ways, repeats what we saw in verse 3, and re but reverses the order. Ye shall testify that you've seen them, even as my servant Joseph Smith Jr. has seen them. For it is by my power, now go back a step, it's by my power that he has seen them, and then go back another step, and it is because he had faith. So how's it work for Joseph Smith? He starts with faith, just like the three witnesses are supposed to. Faith, when he read James 1.5, faith to go out into the grove and ask a question. Faith that motivated his prayer in 1823, wondering about his state and standing before God. Confident that he would gain an answer as he previously had had one. Everything that Joseph's been doing to this point has grown out of Joseph's faith. And because of his faith, he received power. Power to see. Power to see the Father and the Son. Power to see the angel Moroni. Power to obtain the gold plates and to translate them by the gift and power of God. Faith always brings power. And that power then erupts in personal testimony. Again, we saw it in verse 3. Faith, and then sight, and then testimony. And then 5, he just reverses it. He testified because he had power of sight, which he received because he had faith. That order is absolutely essential. Verse 6, then the Lord prefaces their testimony with his own. It's amazing that in this section, the Lord bears witness of the Book of Mormon himself. He says that he, Joseph, has translated the book, even that part which I have commanded him. There is a sealed portion that's yet to go. And then here comes the Lord's own witness. And as your Lord and your God liveth, it is true. As the Lord liveth, that's the strongest oath language that we can muster. When we were little kids and we promised something, we swore, I swear on my grave, you're not even dead yet, but it's like, it's this, my word is stronger, more valuable to me even than my life. Or cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. Kind of morbid when you really think about it, but what are you doing? I'm swearing on my own pain, on my own life. Well, our life doesn't mean much compared to God's. So swear on God's life? Well, he's willing to do that. As your Lord and your God liveth, I know the Book of Mormon is true. What a powerful testimony tucked away in that revelation, giving them his testimony, even as he instructs them on how to gain their own. Then in verse 7, Wherefore, you have received the same power and the same faith, and the same gift like unto him. No wonder we can have similar revelations like 15 and 16. No wonder we can have similar experiences like they're about to have, beholding all of these things. No wonder they're tied into this cloud of witnesses, including prophets of old. And then in verse 8, If ye do these last commandments of mine, which I have given you, the gates of hell shall not prevail against you, for my grace is sufficient for you, and you shall be lifted up at the last day. 
when the Lord first told the Apostle Peter that the gates of hell would not prevail against him, what was the context? Peter had just borne his testimony. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And what was that testimony born of? What did it grow out of? Not sight, even though he'd been walking around with Jesus for a while. It was faith. It was spiritual witness. As Jesus commended him, flesh and blood hath not revealed it to thee, Peter, but my Father which art in heaven. That rock of revelation upon which the church would be built so that the, the gates of hell couldn't prevail against it? The Lord's doing the same thing in this dispensation. It has to be built on faith, on conviction, on personal testimony, on trusting one another as we come to trust in God. Now that might seem so flimsy compared to archaeological proof. Again, all those that are salivating over verse 1 and just, I mean, every curator at the church museum probably looks at verse 1 going, oh man, can you imagine the exhibit we could do with the sword of Laban over here and the breastplate over there? Oh, it's going to be amazing. You know, the Urim and Thummim on, I don't know, black velvet and some lights there. Maybe even, oh, oh, we could superimpose them over the plate so they could, that'd be amazing. People could come and look through the Urim and Thummim at the plates and see what they could see. It'd be an amazing exhibit. Well... Sorry, curators, that's not how God builds his kingdom. The gates of hell can prevail over the quote-unquote knowledge that is unsanctified by the Spirit of God. And so for any who, who lament that fact and wish that God were willing to make things a little easier on everybody, again, that's Martin Harris in section 5, can't I be a missionary that proves everything? And God says, no, just bear your witness. Why? Why should we not be worried about the supposed flimsiness of faith? Because God's grace is sufficient for you. I love that he injects that into that verse in this context. The gates of hell can't prevail against testimony, but testimony is so weak. No, not when it's infused by the power of God, not when God's grace is there. All sufficient to give it, the, remember again from uh, Hiram Smith in section 11, my power, my word, unto the convincing of men, that's what the Spirit does. And trusting in that Spirit that will lead people to do good. Trusting that God will confirm your otherwise weak words. That's what testimony does. Ask any missionary who bears it and pleads with God that even in their stumbling language, investigators are feeling the power of God it's like Brigham Young's conversion when he spoke of being convinced by a testimony borne by a man without eloquence. Whereas Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, I, I came with you not with flowery words of man's wisdom, lest your faith should stand in the wisdom of man instead of the power of God. God's grace is sufficient. How dare we think we can lead people to God without God's help? How dare we think we can help people come to know God's word without relying upon that word to provide its own evidence. So to you three witnesses and to the millions of witnesses that have followed them, you don't have to prove anything. God's grace is sufficient, so trust in it. And at the end of the day, regardless of how they respond to your witness, Again, your actions, not their reactions. You shall be lifted up at the last day. You have done your job. You can shake your garments before them. You are clear of their blood because you've borne your witness, come what may.
Then he concludes in verse 9, And I, Jesus Christ, your Lord and your God, have spoken it unto you, that I might bring about my righteous purposes unto the children of men. Amen. So similar to what he's done in previous revelations. Do you understand who's speaking to you here? Trust me. I know what I'm doing. I am trying to bring about my righteous purposes. Just assist me. Do it with faith. Do it with full purpose of heart. I can do my own work. Just come aboard and be a part of it. Now, having pulled out our magnifying glasses and, and pulled ourselves as deeply into these words as possible, before we end, can I zoom out for a moment and try to convey kind of a big picture understanding of what these three witnesses were, were meant to accomplish as compared to what the eight witnesses were meant to accomplish? This isn't just the multiplication of testimony here. It's amazing what the Lord is trying to do with the juxtaposition of these two testimonies right at the beginning of the Book of Mormon and examples of how people gain testimonies right at the beginning of this dispensation. If you were to compare three witnesses to eight witnesses, watch what starts to come into view. You see, the eight witnesses that came together, Joseph just meets them out in the woods and shows them the golden plates. It's kind of there on the stump, and he's turning pages, and they get to look at it, and they get to heft it, and kind of feel the weight of it, and look at the engravings and go, wow, it sure looks like gold to me. Compare that to the three witnesses, where they are praying together, and Martin Harris knows he's the weak link in the chain, and he goes off, and he's praying on his own, and, and it's just this wrestle with themselves. The, the eight witnesses, it's not a matter of faith. It's a matter of sight. But for the three witnesses, it's all about faith and, and wrestling with their own doubts and concerns and inadequacies and fears until they break through that and now can see. In other words, the eight witnesses was much more of a physical experience, while the three witnesses was much more of a spiritual one. The eight witnesses was natural, and the three witnesses was supernatural, above and beyond nature alone. To tie it in with the language of Revelation from section 8, when God speaks to the mind and the heart, well, there you see all these witnesses, because the eight witnesses was more the mind, and the three witnesses was much more the heart. For the eight witnesses, it was empirical. They just needed their eyes and their hands. But for the three witnesses, it was much more experiential. It took an exercise of their faith. Even read the two testimonies. Compare them side by side and listen to the language from the testimony of the eight witnesses. Joseph Smith Jr., the translator of this work, has shown unto us the plates. Very straightforward, natural, empirical. From the three witnesses' testimony, an angel of God came down from heaven and he brought and laid before our eyes these things. Miraculous, divine. From the eight witnesses, the plates have the appearance of gold. And later, all of which has the appearance of ancient work. It's like, it sure looks good to me. <laughs> As opposed to the three witnesses, they have been shown unto us by the power of God and not of man. The eight witnesses said, we have seen and hefted. The three witnesses said, God's voice hath declared it unto us. Can you imagine the experience there? Not just seeing the plates and all these other artifacts. This isn't show and tell from, with Joseph in the woods. Angel, voice of God, 
God opened the heavens. It wasn't just Joseph opening his knapsack. The difference here is profound. Which group would you rather be a part of? The eight witnesses end by saying, we know of a surety that the said Smith has got the plates of which we have spoken. So what did their testimony consist of? We know Joseph has these plates that sure look like gold and ancient stuff to us. Whereas what was the three witnesses testimony and experience? Wherefore we know of a surety that the work is true. Do you catch the difference? For the eight, we know Joseph has plates that look convincing. For the three, because of their wrestle with faith, because of the experiential heart-based nature of it all, we know the work is true. Not just the plates as an, as an object, but the work of God as, as an objective. It's incredible what they are experiencing because of what God required of them. In conclusion, the eight witnesses said, we lie not. God bearing witness of it. Like We're telling the truth, so help me God. Whereas the three, if we are faithful in Christ, we shall rid our garments of the blood of all men and be found spotless before the judgment seat of Christ and shall dwell with him eternally in the heavens. Do you get a sense of the difference in spirit between these two experiences? The eight, I'm not lying. I'm telling the truth, I swear. The three, so far beyond that, we want to be faithful in Christ. We want our garments to be washed white in his blood. The eight are worried about how the world might judge them. Liars or truth tellers? The three are understanding how they want to be judged by God. We want to be found spotless before his judgment seat. The eight, we want to fit in among our neighbors. The three, we want to dwell eternally in the presence of God. You understand the difference between uh, a knowledge and faith, between the empirical and the miraculous? The way it changes us, changes our perspectives, makes us into new creatures in Christ. Just about anybody could have been one of the eight witnesses. There was no price that they had to pay. That was not the case with the three. The three were giving something very different in a different direction. Not their names to the world, but all glory to the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. When you read the two different testimonies and look behind them to see the two different, I don't know, requirements of the experience that went into them, I hope you will come away recognizing the value of the wrestle of faith that God is inviting us into. Faith first, sight second, and testimony third. In some ways, the eight witnesses got to skip number one. Again, I, I, try, I don't, forgive me if I'm not trying to throw the eight witnesses under the bus. They were amazing. And yes, there's faith in Joseph's work that, that goes into it, but not on the same level as the three witnesses. I, I'm just trying to draw out those differences because they make the ultimate difference to us. You can tie it all back into what we learned in section five, which to me still is one of the most important things we've learned in the Doctrine and Covenants so far. Go back and watch that one if you haven't already. Now there's one last thing I want to say. And it's not in the scriptures, but it grows out of this same experience. Because we often speak of the 11 witnesses of the Book of Mormon, in addition to Joseph Smith, the three and the eight. But there was a 12th, and that was Mary Whitmer. 
This poor, exhausted woman, raising a huge family of her own on the American frontier, milking cows while the boys are out plowing the fields. And what? We're bringing more people over? Another man and his wife and his friend, three strangers are moving in with us? I mean, it's one thing for Joseph to say, as we saw at the beginning, we're getting free room and board and some assistance. It's another thing to flip and see, wait a minute, who's the one providing that room and board? Who's the one that's now going to be absent some assistance that she'd been used to? Well, it was Mother Whitmer. As her son David recalled years later, my father and mother had a large family of their own. The addition to it, therefore, of Joseph, his wife Emma, and Oliver, very greatly increased the toil and anxiety of my mother. Her name was Mary, but you sense a little Martha there, don't you? And although she never complained, she had sometimes felt that her labor was too much, or at least she was perhaps beginning to feel so. Well, the Lord rewarded that Martha-like anxiety with a Mary-like miracle in which the angel Moroni came dressed as an old man with a knapsack that was heavy on his shoulders, came to Mary Whitmer as she was going out to milk the cows in the barn. Yes, one more labor to perform. And according to David's account, the angel said to her, you have been very faithful and diligent in your labors, but you are tried because of the increase of your toil. It is proper, therefore, that you should receive a witness that your faith may be strengthened. Many later accounts of this misspelled the word tried and printed it tired. She was more than just tired because of the work. She was being tried by this experience. It was a test for her and one that she was passing. No wonder the angel considered it proper that she should receive a witness that her faith would be strengthened. She had shown faith. Now she was receiving a witness, which would in turn fortify her faith. This beautiful ascending spiral. Another account of this miraculous experience came from her grandson, John C. Whitmer, who said that the person, the angel, told her to be patient and faithful in bearing her burden a little longer. Maybe that's another reason why Joseph is translating at breakneck speed, promising that if she would do so, she should be blessed and her reward would be sure if she proved faithful to the end. Sounds a lot like the promises of reward that have appeared in so many of these sections we've studied today. Back to David's account, he said that the experience his mother had nerved her up for her increased responsibilities. I love the fact that faith rewarded with witness can nerve us up for whatever responsibilities may come. But in speaking of Mary Whitmer, this 12th witness, can I juxtapose her for a moment with another faithful sister saint that would be just as tried by the experience of Joseph's translation? And that was his wife, Emma. To put side by side Mary's experience with Emma's to me is profound to learn something from these sisters, both now living under the same roof, both trying their very best to support Joseph in whatever he was trying to accomplish. And yet while Mary's faith was rewarded with this sight of the plates, Emma's faith was not rewarded in that way. And I'm amazed by her 
Emma is one of my latter-day heroines. She never had the privilege of seeing the plates, even though she's the one that accompanied Joseph to the Hill Cumorah the night that he obtained them, even though she sat under his voice as he dictated and she wrote she acted as one of the earliest scribes of the Book of Mormon, before Martin Harris, before Oliver Cowdery, before John Whitmer. Even though she, when she was cleaning up and dusting around the plates covered by a cloth, and would move them and feel their weight and, and rustle the pages underneath the cloth and, and feel and hear this metallic, ah, I just want to look. I just want to see. But in the absence of the privilege of doing so, I do believe. I'm amazed at the faith of Emma and the faithfulness of Emma. As I meet people and hear from people all over the world, some of whom have rock-solid testimonies and others who are seeking valiantly to gain one, please understand the value of the examples of Mary Whitmer and Emma Smith. Some of you are like Mary, whose faith is rewarded with this incredible experiential evidence that you know. Others of you are like Emma Smith, still wrestling, still working, still hoping and wanting, and not getting the exact testimony that you desire. And yet, you soldier on. You stay faithful. You keep serving. You gain a testimony of the heart, even though you've never had a testimony of the eye. Emma came to gain a testimony of the Book of Mormon as strong as Mary's was, even though her experiences were different. And the same can be true of you and I. I'm guessing that many of us wish we could have a Mary Whitmer kind of experience. But if you are having Emma Smith kinds of experiences instead, Please don't forget what the Lord said to a doubting, or I should say, a no longer doubting Thomas. You have seen and believed, and blessed are ye. But more blessed are those who have not yet seen and yet believe. Both can receive the reward of testimony. But there's a whole lot of other rewards that come in the wrestle. Now, before we close, there are three last statements I want to share from the testimony of the three witnesses. Three that I didn't bring up in our earlier comparison between the three and the eight. The first, they said this, The voice of the Lord commanded us that we should bear record of it. Wherefore, to be obedient unto the commandments of God, we bear testimony of these things. So the Lord was crystal clear to them. You have to testify of the experience that you've had. It's what we saw in section 17. First step is faith and second is sight, but the third has to be testimony. You've got to share it. Years ago in a seminary class, there was a girl that was so timid, so shy, socially anxious, that it, must, it took all of her strength and courage to raise her hand at one point. We were having a discussion about testimony and kind of trembling in the corner, she asked, but do I have to bear it out loud? Do I have to stand up in sacrament meeting and share my testimony? And my heart went out to her. I could see the, the courage that it took just to ask the question. And so recognizing how fearful it must be for her to get up and speak publicly, I just, I reassured her and said, there are so many other ways to bear testimony. 
you can let your light so shine. You can be an example to other people. In 3 Nephi, the Lord even says that partaking of the sacrament is a testimony of sorts. So I imagine you bear your testimony every Sunday, even if you never get up at the pulpit. I could feel that she was feeling better and better. But the better she felt, the worse I did. And I had, it was weird, but the clearest impression, you're, this is not what you're supposed to say to her. I mean, there are times that that's exactly the right counsel. There are truly many other ways to bear testimony, but that's not what she needs to hear. You're allowing her to succumb to her fear. And that's not the right approach right now. It was so such a clear impression to me that I caught myself like stopped dead in my tracks. And in the middle of this voice of reassurance, I just stopped and said, actually, yeah, you do need to bear your testimony. And moving on. I mean, it was like just kind of 180. But I knew I needed to say that. I knew she needed to hear it. There are times where God does command that we bear witness of the things that we know. And such was the experience of the three witnesses. The second phrase, And we know that it is by the grace of God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ that we beheld and bear record that these things are true. I love that they credited not just the sight, but the privilege to bear witness of what they saw to the grace of the Father and the Son. Do you have any idea what a gift it is from them for us to gain a testimony? And what a gift from them for us to be able to share it. I pray that you will receive my testimony through the grace of God. Because I know that's how I received it. His grace is sufficient for us to learn and for us to teach. For us to know and for us to make known all of that comes through the grace of God. And when we feel that grace, whether in witnessing the sight side or witnessing the spoken side, we can say with the three witnesses, and it is marvelous in our eyes. I can't think of a better way to describe testimony. And the wrestles and rewards of faith Wherever you happen to be, Mary or Emma, David or Martin or Oliver, wherever you happen to be in your search for truth, whether you're still trying to muster your faith, whether you are beginning to see with spiritual eyes the truthfulness of these things, whether you are able to bear testimony to others and feel it sanctified by God's grace, that whole process, wherever you happen to be in it, it is marvelous in our eyes, and it's marvelous in the Lord's.